Hey everyone, uh, so good to be up with you guys again. I know that y'all are probably gassed after hiking. Some of you did not make it up and down all in one piece, and so I'm so sorry to hear that. Uh, I've got good news for you tonight, though. I promise, I promise that you're going to hear something that I hope will encourage you. Um, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to what we've already read some of this week. We're going to look at the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, again singular. And uh, we're going to look at the 21st chapter, reading a series of verses 1 through 5, and then also verses 22 through 27. You know, I've tried to say uh, so far this week as we've continued this theme of God making all things new, that, uh, that this really is uh, amazing and fantastic news. Now that might not strike you when I say it like that, so we kind of have to explore it together. And we asked the first night that we said, listen, you're going to have to use your imagination. And I don't think that there's any other of the talks that I'm giving this week that will require the use of that than tonight. I also want to say this. We said last night that part of the what that God was making new was, was us, was people. But you may have heard me sort of hint at it. That is not all that God is making new. You see, there's something else that God is making that the Scriptures tell us about. And before I go into that, I just want to say that uh, you could almost say that what we're going to hear about tonight is the macro theme of the Bible throughout from page Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22. This is something that is massive that we're going to look at tonight. So what that means is, one, I hope that you'll walk away with just a little something. Two, there is no way I'm going to be able to answer all of your questions. So that serves as a reminder to write things down. Because this is probably going to stir up more questions than any of the talks that I'm going to do this week. In short, we're going to be talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And I cannot wait to get into it with you. I'm shaking in my boots because I'm both excited and nervous that I won't say it right. So if you pray, will you pray for me as I'm giving this talk? That would be really helpful. I want to be clear, and I really want to stir in you a picture of what God is doing here in this world. It is amazing and fantastic, y'all, but I hope to be able to show that to you. So let's read this together. Revelation 21, 1 to 5, and we're going to skip down to verses 22 and 20 to 27. Now just a reminder, context for Revelation. John, the apostle, has been given a vision. He is, being, he is seeing, as it were, the end of the story. Okay, and so it would be like, I don't know if many, did anybody read Choose Your Own Adventures books? Was that a thing? It was huge when I was a kid. Yeah, all the people over here my age or older. Okay, oh, they got some good. Okay, great. As a kid, what I would always do was find out the end that I wanted and then sort of work backwards. Y'all know what I'm talking about? That's literally what John is doing. And you know, if you're a Christian, you know the end of the story right now. And we're going to get to explore the end of the story for us tonight. So keep that in mind. That's what John is showing us. So let's read this together. Revelation 21, beginning in the first verse there. And then we'll read a few at the end. Hear now God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, 
and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And now skipping to the end of the chapter. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun nor moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates shall, shall will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together and ask Him to help us tonight. Father, would You by Your Spirit come now. We... We have no need to invite you here. You're already with us. And so we ask that you would go to work in our eyes and our ears and our hearts. Lord, you know you have made us with limits. Many of us are tired. We're weak. Our legs are killing us. Our backs are killing us. And we ask that you would help us in this next moment or so to attend to what you would have to teach us. Would you be with me, O oh Lord? And would you deliver a straight blow, Lord, with a crooked arrow that your people might delight, that they might see, they might marvel at what you are doing for them. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Well, one of the things that uh, we love to do together at our house uh, is we love to have people over. We love to entertain. Laura is a fantastic host. And whether it be our neighbors, whether it be people from church, or just kids from our, or folks from our kids' schools, we want our home to be a place where people can rest, where they can, in a sense, know something of the welcome that God Himself gives us in Christ. Well, when these get-togethers involve kids, you can imagine it gets a little cray-cray, right? Because it, my kids are like six and three, and you can multiply that by like the three of them by five, and you kind of get a sense of like the madness that ensues over the hour and a half that people are at our house. I mean, it's crazy. And without fail, there's always the look. Laura and I call it the look. All of the guests have gone... And it's just the five of us left in the house, and we look at each other, and we're like, all right, it's time to assess the damage here. And we look around the house, and it's amazing. I mean, like, out pouring out from our twins' rooms is like this parade of pink. Down the hallway, stuffed animals in the book nook, everything. And that's not it. They, stuff literally begins to tumble down the stairs, making its way into our living room, into our dining room, and lo and behold, sometimes there's stuff all over the backyard that belongs up in the playpen in their rooms. Why? Because there's been a party, folks have been celebrating, it's been awesome, and now it's like, it's like our house, our house has been invaded by like pink six-year-old stuff. That's what it feels like after every single one of these parties. In the end, it's not uncommon for us to think this. Our house 
has just been ruled and run over by six-year-olds. The spoils of their victory laying all over our house. Well, I mention this tonight in an odd way, perhaps, to get us to think and to get us to understand what is going on here in this passage. Last night, we saw that God, in His great project of making all things new, most certainly makes you and me, should we trust in Christ, new. He makes us new creations, we heard. But, but, is that all that God is doing in the world? That's a big question, y'all. In other words, is that all that salvation itself is about? You see, I think that many of us, if you've grown up in and around the church, we have oftentimes a wrong way of thinking about the, the bounds or the, or the width and the depth and the breadth of the salvation that God Himself is bringing. You see, many well-intended Christians tend to think about salvation something like this. Let me call it a Jesus and me Christianity. Y'all might know what I'm talking about. Jesus came to save me. He came to get me out of hell so that I can live with Him forever. And the end of the story in this way of thinking often looks like this. Well, what does it look like? It's just us sort of floating around in some way in some sort of spiritual existence. Maybe we're playing harps all day. Maybe we've sprouted small little wings out of our back. Who knows? We're maybe these little cherub babies that are genderless and we just sort of float around all day and that's sort of the picture of heaven that we have. Now I just want to ask you, I'm just being serious for a second. Does that sound all that exciting? No. And you wonder sometimes why your non-Christian friends just kind of look at Christianity and go, what's the point? If that's the best we've got to offer, we're selling them a bill of goods. But we're also selling them a shady deal, if you know what I mean. The Bible itself gives us something far more robust. Something amazing that we're going to explore tonight. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see this. The good news, the gospel itself, certainly contains the news that Jesus Christ has come into this world to save sinners. 100%. He has come to make a way that you might know God both now and forever. Hallelujah. Thank God that He has done that. But that is not all that God is up to when we think about the good news. The gospel, the good news is also what we have read tonight. That God Himself is making not just people new, He is making all things new. And that includes the very, hang with me, the very world that we inhabit right now. You see, that is the good news. The Gospel isn't just God has a wonderful plan for your life, though that's true. It's also that God has a wonderful plan for this world. And so tonight, we want to take a look at what the Bible is going to teach us about God making not just new persons, but about making a new place for us to dwell with Him forever. That's my main point. That's the singular end I want to show you tonight. That God is making a new place for you and for Him, for me and for Him, for us as His people, to live with Him forever. And I hope tonight that some of you walk out of here going, What? I have never heard that in all my life. Because I'm telling you, when it begins to get a hold of you, ask some of the pastors in this room. 
I'm telling you, it is profound when you begin to understand this. So I hope I'm not setting the bar too high, but that's what we're hoping for tonight. So what this means is this, before we get started, this will be a big picture sermon. For you particularists, this might drive you crazy. There's going to be broad strokes tonight. This is, a, this is not a trees sermon, this is a forest sermon. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Big picture, okay? So you've got to keep that in mind, and you're going to have to use your imagination. So what is the first thing that I want to show you from this text? Well, it's very, very small, but it's in there. You see it on your sheet. I want you to see, first of all, that God made a place. That God made a place. I'm going to root this in the first verse there where John says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. Now that verse is very important because of the assumptions in it. You see, John assumes that God has made it all. That God is the creator. And that he had made all that there was. Everything from the nebula in the sky down to the very quarks at the subatomic level. That God has made it all. And if you read John 1, you can read more about the apostles' view of the created world that God has made. But here's the thing he wants you to see. That God made this world, He made this world to fill it with His presence. We have to go back to the book of Genesis, which would certainly have been in John's mind when he's writing this, that the goal was this, that the Creator God would make a world where He and those whom He loved, people, mankind, you and me, could dwell together forever. Where man and woman would enjoy God. Where man and woman would enjoy one another in the good world that God had made for them to dwell together forever. And that place, as you might remember from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, was a garden. It was special not just because it was where man and woman were made and put, but it was special for other reasons as well. It was in that garden that man himself was given that task, do you remember, of ruling and subduing all of creation. One thing we often forget about, too, is that also in Genesis chapter 2, we learn that man was also given the task of cultivating that garden, of bringing, like God had done, order out of chaos, making beauty out of that which was chaotic. And so we look at the language of cultivating and protecting the garden as well. And the result was this, that there would be a picture in this very world of what God had done in making it Himself. But that's not all. There was actually a, a, a special of special places called Eden. And Eden was the place that God Himself, we're told, would come down and walk in the cool of the, of the day and be with man and woman together. Dear friends, all of this is in John's mind. And it's so, so critical and the thing that I want you to just grasp before we begin is that God has made place. You're hearing me say, you just heard me say that God made a place. That is true. I am saying, though, that God made place itself. He made space-time, okay? And the best way to think about this is Him going, let it be. And God said, boom, out of nothing. With a word, God makes a world. And I'm telling you, when you begin to understand that God has made a place and that the purpose of this place was so that man and God would live together forever, then you begin to get a sense 
of the reason for which the world was made. So here's the question for us right now. What are you hoping for? Like, what's the point of heaven anyways? I mean, really. Is heaven still desirable if God's not there? The answer to that question is no. It's no. And so therefore, built into you, longing in you, is to be again with the God that made you and see Him face to face forever. I mean, it's such a good thing. It's it's so foreign to us, we just barely can think of it. And that is the promise of the way that God had made the world. And it is where we are going as well. A quick implication tonight that I want you to see. The initial point of creation that God made place was for God and man to dwell together forever. That language of dwelling is so important. The triune God was not bound to create this world, but out of His overflowing love for us, He desired to create it, fill it with people who could share in that love that the Trinity experienced from all of time, and to experience that with Him forever. That was the whole point of this whole project in the first place. Creation is where God made a place where human beings could enjoy the fellowship of God forever. And friends, this leads me now kind of to my second point, is that this might be a bit heady. I know this is going to be a bit heady after 12 miles on the trail, but God Himself made physicality. And that takes us to our second point. You see it there on your page. I've just said this, that God doesn't make junk. That God doesn't make junk. Not only did God make place, but God did not make junk as well. And I'm trying to get at a value assessment of the created world. Now, value assessment, what do you mean? Just think back with me to Genesis chapter 1. After every day, y'all work with me on this, right? That God saw all that He had made, or saw what He had made on that one day, and what was the proclamation that God Himself made after the, after the work on that day? What was it? And it was? Good. There it is, right? And you remember how the story unfolds. And then there was day and there was night the first day, right? That day and there was night and morning and there was the first day. That's how it goes. And then you remember this as the week progresses. God is making, He's making the world and He's filling it. And then on the sixth day, we see God making mankind and then... What's really interesting is, ladies, it's not till after you are made that God issues the very good. So that's pretty cool, actually. Really? That's really cool. Yes. But the point is, is this. Is that the created world, God looks at it, and God himself says, this is awesome. God loves the world he made. And I don't just mean earth. I mean everything in it. I mean, as Gerard Manley Hopkins talked about, that the world world is filled with the grandeur of God. And that God looks down on it and it pleases Him. He smiles at it, not just because you are in it, but but definitely because you are. That is what you must understand. It was all good. And what this means is, is that includes our physicality. Now, I'm going to get really technical here for a second, so I want you to hang with me. Talking about us for a second. When God made mankind, He made Him, He made us, body and soul together. And that is very, very important for where we're going in just a moment. That God made things like our soul, yes, but God also made your epidermis and fingernails. And God looks at your pancreas and He says, very good. Did you know that? You don't believe it, but He did 
And God looks at all of the culture that is beautiful and has developed. He says, very good. And God looks at fish, and he looks at the birds of the air, and he looks at flamingos, and he says, this is all good. Why? I think this is so important for us, because unless you understand that God loves physicality, that he loves physicalness, he loves when you grab and you touch and you feel the very flesh that you have, that that is stuff that God smiles at. And we've lost that. The church has lost this picture of the goodness of God's creation. And I'll show you why in just a moment. But that's not how the story always goes. My point is this, that God doesn't make junk. But what happens? It was subject to sin and brokenness. And what did this do to not only us and the world and to our presence with God? Well, we fell into sin. Ruin entered. We, we, were not, we, are not, we are no longer what we were made for. And neither is the world, the Bible tells us. That it too is subject to futility. But it is under a curse. That is what we're told. And what happened? What else happened? Do you remember? That God and man's relationship, while God still loved man, while He still sought him out, there was a break. And you remember what happens out of the garden. Man, put, man is put out of the garden by God Himself at the end of Genesis chapter 3. And an angel is put outside, a cherubim is what it says, are put outside the garden with a flaming sword to protect the tree of life so that man cannot get back to it. And so standing between man and God is this barrier. This barrier with a cherub defending us, or us getting it back in. Again, that's going to be important too. These are all setups. These are all setups. Let me show you what I mean by this when it falls. Uh, when, it, when the world sort of falls into despair and ruin. Several years ago, oh gosh, 20 years now, uh, when I was in college, um, I want to tell you a little bit of a story about platform diving. Platform diving. Now, you might look at this uh, specimen up here and say, that guy is definitely a diver. Uh, but you would be dead wrong, okay? Now, I know nothing about diving, which is why I should not have been on the 10-meter platform that fateful night in college. Um, so I was up there one night, and uh, I had decided this would be a great idea to try out my backflip skills. Y'all know what I'm talking about, 10-meter? I don't mean this. I mean the high one, the very, very tall one. So uh, in a, an early morning hour, uh, me and some of my friends decided we would go over to the diving board and practice our diving technique. Yes, I was completely sober, lest you were wondering, okay? Uh, but I did do a backflip off of the back of the, of the meter, whatever it was, 10 meter back, landed on my side, over-rotated, came up out of the water, and I was like, that was the dumbest decision of my entire life. See, my judgment skills were growing, friends. Here's what I want you to see. Why do I tell you that? I, from that moment on, had a sort of love-hate relationship with the backflip high dive because I had experienced its brokenness like on a point, on a tip, if you know what I mean. But that does not mean that, that platform diving is not beautiful. That does not mean that it is not wonderful. And what the, the creation narrative is telling us is though that the creation is broken, it is not ruined. That the creation is fallen, it is not... God doesn't throw it all away as we learned about. And so there's still this incredible goodness in creation, though fallen it might be. 
And we'll explore that in just a moment. But I want to touch just a moment too on our physicalness for a moment. Talking about our bodily physicalness being intrinsically good. Listen to what folks often say. Now you might have heard this or seen this on a Twitter feed somewhere. And, it's, and this, is what, this is actually a real quote that I have seen. We were made together as body and soul. And I know you might most likely have heard a quote that gets attributed to C.S. Lewis that reads like this. Hang with me. Tell me if you've ever heard it. You do not have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. That sounds like a great quote. One famous apologist even has cited it in, in a couple of his books. And a very godly pastor, who I have enormous respect for, has even tweeted it as such. But there's two major reasons this is problematic. One, C.S. Lewis never said it. Okay? And the reason he probably didn't ever say it, too, is because it's horrible theology. It's not true. It's just not true. Why? Because the Bible tells us this. That you were made, you are body and soul. That's who you are. When God made us, He made us in soul bodies, if you like, or in flesh, in flesh souls. However you like to say it, they go together. And the reality of the brokenness of death entering into this world is that death separates what is meant to be put together. And so if you've ever been to a funeral, perhaps, you might have heard this. Well, Aunt Betty, I mean, I've said this. Aunt Betty, she's in a better place. But you know what? That's bad theology. Because you know where Aunt Betty is? She's in that coffin standing right in front of me. That's the sadness of the brokenness of death. Because it's ripped apart body and soul. Now hang with me on this. I promise you I'm going to make, make all this make sense. Do you know where the greatest parties will be happening on Resurrection Day? It actually won't be at churches. Well, it might be at churches. Just really, really old ones where they have cemeteries on the grounds where they're at. Y'all know what I'm talking about? The greatest parties at the return of our Lord Jesus are going to be when the dead rise. And where are the dead buried? They're buried in cemeteries. So if you're around and Jesus comes back in your life in your lifetime, get thee to a cemetery quickly. Okay? Because body and soul will then be rejoined together. My point in making all this is that God doesn't make junk. And therefore, your body, your body, your physicality is not inherently evil or wicked or to be escaped. This is not biblical at all. It is thoroughly platonic. Yes, that Plato. And he thought that in short, this is a major summary of Western intellectual thought, that basically that the body was bad, the spirit was good, and that the aim of life was to get rid of the body, that prison of the soul, to set the soul free. Sounds good. Western intellectuals love it. It's anti-biblical. And I urge you to abandon that thought altogether. And instead to begin to say, body and soul, both good, both awesome. And in the resurrection, guess what? We're going to have both. How do we know that? Think about our Lord and Savior, Jesus. He rises from the dead. He walks up to Thomas and he says, Thomas, uh, you won't believe until you put your hands in my hands or my wrists in my side. Give me your hand. Boom. What do you think? My Lord and my God. Chapter later in the book of John, he's on the beach. What does Jesus ask his disciples for? Does anybody remember? Yeah, I'd like a fish to eat, please. Ghosts, spirits, don't eat. 
Friends, listen. Jesus is showing us a picture as the first fruit of the resurrection. What resurrection life is like. And resurrection life is like this. It is physical. God did not make junk. And that takes me now to my third point that I really want to drive home. That because God didn't make junk, God does not junk what He has made. And this is going to be profound, friends. Take a look with me now back at the text. I want you to see what John is writing about. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adored for her husband. Verse 2, you can circle it, underline it, and it will change your theology just like this. Question class. This will be an A, B, multiple choice answer. Okay? A, do we go to heaven, B, or does heaven come to us? Verse 2 says, heaven comes down to us. That is what this text is showing us. Now, there's a lot lot in there that I'm going to try to get at in just a moment, but my point I want you to see is, is that heaven itself is not somewhere that we fly off to in a disembodied state, but rather the promise that John is giving us is that God is remaking a world and He is bringing it to us, friends. And that in the resurrection, that world will be physical. And that place that we dwell with Him will be physical. The old order of things has passed away. Where there is now ruin, there will be shalom. The sea being gone doesn't mean that we won't have a beach or go deep sea fishing. What that means is is that the sea was a picture of chaos. And now that picture of chaos is utterly done away with. That's what John is trying to get across. Ruin and death, as John has said, are all gone. And John notes that this world is gone away forever. It won't be allowed in God's good world. And the prayer that we have prayed since we were children will at last be answered. And what Handel captured in his Messiah. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Handel's Messiah? Y'all remember the point where it's like, um, where there's that line that says this. It gets really, really quiet. This is Handel's way of picking up on it. He says this. He says, The kingdom of this world is real silent. And then it explodes. And of his Christ. You see what I'm talking about? The kingdom of this world and of his Christ. It's him. It's exploding into sound what is happening in history. That God himself is remaking all things. And that the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ will be realized forever. Look at verse 4. Death itself has died. You see, in this new heavens and new earth, death itself, will, that is a parasite on God's good world, will finally be killed itself. What happens when death can no longer work? Can death touch immortality? No. Listen to this, friends. A cotton ball on your hand in this life will do infinitely more damage than death will in the next. And John Donne puts it best when he says this, Death, thou shalt die. Moreover, you see in the text there, there will be no mourning, no more crying, and pain itself categorically will be gone. I mean, is your heart beginning to get warmed yet? And look what else it tells us. That physicality remains. Don't you see it? Our bodies, having been made new, will no longer be touched by the ills that put us in the ground in the first place. The new heavens and the new earth is robustly physical. 
And look as well at the passage that we ended on there. Later in our text, the forever redeemed people of God will be engaged in cultural activity. A continuation of our task from Genesis 1.28 where we were told to have dominion. Look at Revelation um, Look at Revelation 21 there where we read this. Where we read that the, that the kings will come in. Did you see it? Verse 24. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of this earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no more light. Remember this, friends. Imagine all of the kings in human history coming to Jesus' feet and laying down at His feet the best of all of their cultural artifacts, the philosophy of the Greeks, down at Jesus' feet. The sciences and the arts from both the East and the West, down at His feet. Food and all of culture, down at Jesus' feet. All cultures, varied and good, laid down at the One for whom it was all created to be for at the beginning. How many of you love the Olympics? I know I do. I just, I, I absolutely love them. And my favorite part of the Olympics is always the very opening ceremonies where you just get to see the nations begin to enter into the arena. And you see all sorts of, of histories and skin colors and culture types come into the kingdom. And friends, this is what the picture of heaven is like. Every tribe, every tongue, Every nation, every people group, from the history of human culture, from, the, from human history altogether, coming together to lay their best down at Jesus' feet. Cultural activity remains. And perhaps the point I've been trying to make all night long, the idea of place. Because God doesn't make junk. God called it good and it was. And because He is not junking what He has made, he means that He is restoring all things, and this means something amazing for us. The new creation, which is the new heaven and the new earth, is the new Jerusalem called a city. And this city is a garden-like city. And that city, we are told, if you were to go up to verse, uh, I'm looking at Revelation here, if you were going to Re verse 16, it would read this. The city, it's talking about this new Jerusalem, lies four square its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia, and this is the key verse. Its length and its width and its height are all equal. And friends, that is a direct reference to the holy of holies in the temple. I just skipped over a big old argument. I'm just going to give you the nuts and bolts. And the picture is this. The holy of holies is the very place where God's very presence dwelt. And what this means is this, is that the city itself, the new Jerusalem, and therefore the dwelling place of God, has spread over the face of the earth like my daughter's toys in pink have taken over our house. That God's space will cover the earth, as we talked about the other night, as the waters cover the face of the seas. And you might be saying, well, Ryan, that sounds like what you're saying is, is that the new heavens and the new earth is like this earth. And what I'm saying is, is that's exactly what I'm saying. It's a renewed earth. It's a restored earth. It is one purified. But it is this earth. There is continuity to it. 
Just like there will be continuity with your resurrection body. Will you have that mole on your face? I don't know. Will you be able to dunk? I hope so. I want to be able to dunk, but I don't know. Oh, no, I know. He's going to be able to dunk. Okay. The picture is this. That God is making all things new. And the main point of all this is this. Is that there will not be one square inch, not one square inch of all of creation that is not God with man and space. Let me say that again. There will not be, I know this is double negatives, and my 10th grade English teacher will be killing me right now, but there are not, there, there will not be, no, there will be no space that is not God with man's space. Amen. That is amazing. That is what you're in for. That is what God is doing. And what that means is, is that we get to participate with Him. We are called up into action. We're called to participate with Him in this work of making all things new. And we're going to look at that the next couple nights. But I need to land with this. How can we be sure that the space, that the place of God will be the place with man forever? How can we know that the barrier has been gone and it is gone, that we will forever be with Him? And I want you to know that it has everything to do with a man named Jesus and him dying on a cross. You see, that distance was a barrier because of the sin that was introduced into the world. And our Lord, when he was on the cross, bleeding and crying out his last, he was taking care of, making payment for our sin for us. And what that happened, listen to what listen to what happens. Immediately what happens. Listen to what Matthew chapter 27 how it reads. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His spirit dead. Matthew 27, 50. But then without skipping a beat, no gap, immediately, Matthew 27, 51 says this, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Y'all know what was all over that temple? Cherubim. Angels stitched into the curtain. Does that sound familiar? And it's been ripped in two. Y'all know what that means? What we were kicked out of the garden for, we now have access to. That God now gets us back. That we have our Father's face again because of the work of the Son. That the distance has been torn down. And now we get Jesus Forever. And what we only see dimly now in the mirror, we will one day see face to face, friends. This is what is so beautiful about it all. My former pastor, Darwin Jordan, tells this wonderful story about the world that God Himself is remaking. He puts it this way from the heights of the Himalayas to the depths of the Mariana Trench, from songbirds and snow leopards all the cultures from ancient Mesopotamia to the modern East and West, all of creation right now, in all of its absolute wonder and beauty, is in a wheelchair. It's in a wheelchair. It sits bound under a curse. And when Jesus returns at the new heavens and the new earth, this entirety of creation, you and me included, now confined to its wheels, will finally get up and run. I mean, I just, 
I just tremble at the thought of it because it's so glorious. And that's what's true for you and me, friends. And we will say with the angels forever, all because of Christ, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen. Let's pray. What will we do, Lord, when the preacher's words fail to approximate all that you have promised for us? What will we do when the Apostle John's words are at best images and pictures of all that you have in store for us? We rely on the Spirit. We rely on the good promises of your word to make them real and true in our hearts and to change us. And so would you take those things now that we've heard tonight and do just that? And would you encourage us profoundly? We lift this all up in Jesus' name. Or before we say amen, we say this, come quickly. Come quickly.